0: Well, good morning, so good to see you, Mars Hill. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Uh, And yeah, this text is, in a sense, a prequel, uh, but hopefully a prequel we will enjoy, not like Star Wars episodes one through three. I don't know what happened there. Someone said, preach. <laughs> um, Exodus 25, 1 through 9. Uh, it, it really is, in a sense, a, a prequel. I like that. Imagery. This is all about imagery of one who's coming. Um, the tabernacle, its materials, instructions on how to build it. Uh, its function. All of these things God is instructing Israel to do so that he could prepare Israel's hearts for the reception of the Messiah. What we've been learning through Exodus is that uh, God calls a people and he calls a people for a purpose. All throughout Exodus, the main theme is God's redemption for sanctification. God calling a people out of darkness into marvelous light for a purpose that they might represent him, that they might serve him, that they might worship him. Let my people go, that they may serve me, God says to Pharaoh. In another instance in Exodus 5, 1, he blurs the line and the distinction between what we think of service and what we think of worship, and that he's calling Israel out to serve him so that they may also worship him, that they may have a feast, they may hold a feast for me in the wilderness. See, for God, there's not really a distinction between serving him and worshiping him, both of them are expressions of loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so God calls a people out of slavery for a reason, for a purpose, to sanctify them. And of course, we know sanctification means to be made holy. And to be made holy means to be set apart for a specific purpose, for a reason, for a trajectory, for an end point. God, <clears throat> over the past few weeks, has been giving... Israel instructions on how this sanctification is going to look. So if I've called you out of Egypt into a new land, I want you to be different from the Canaanites, I want you to be different from the ancient of cultures around you, which means you're gonna to have to live differently, you're gonna to have to worship differently. We saw instructions, moral, ethical laws for how to live differently, but now we're starting to see God's instructions on how to worship differently. And one of the things that's gonna set Israel apart is the tabernacle this mobile space that can be constructed and torn apart and moved where God would dwell with his people. And the really neat thing about the tabernacle, uh, besides its function, is that even the materials that God chooses to construct the tabernacle with teach us something about him and foreshadow and kind of uh, predict Jesus. Jesus. in this text this morning, we're going to see that the materials of the tabernacle hint at a Messiah. Our Emmanuel, which means God with us, whose call to worship him is made in love and not in coercion. So what I want to do is I want to reread the text, and I want us to pay particular attention to the material that God is collecting from Israel because it's the material that we're going to spend most of our time on this morning. Exodus 25, starting with verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they may take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incenses. Onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breast piece. And let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, you shall make it. So, know, maybe some of you are wondering, like, why are we studying this passage? It's a list of construction materials that are going to be donated by Israel to God. Check. (laughs) Can we just move on to something meatier? No, because (laughs) all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for correction, instruction, reproof, rebuke. And here, I believe this is very profitable for instruction for us. So that's reason number one. Reason number two, despite what it looks like at the surface value, um, this list of material is not, as one biblical scholar put it, a, quote, faithfully preserved architectural instruction set. Like, that's the most bland interpretation of this I could think of. That's like saying the Constitution is a faithfully preserved legal document. Is that true? Well, yeah, because we still have it today and it's been a few hundred years. But is the Constitution of the United States more than merely a faithfully preserved legal document? Of course it is. And so the same thing applies here. This material list is a list of materials, but it's so much more than that. Imagine for a moment, I gave you a list of materials. I request that you supply the following items to me as soon as possible. 31 tons of copper, 125 tons of steel, 45 pounds of gold, 54 million pounds of concrete, 25 glass windows and wood that would be sufficient to build scaffolding. That's about 305 by 42 feet. And I'd also like thousands and thousands of steel rivets. So uh, what do these materials mean to you? Nothing more than they're very expensive and you're not getting them from me, right? I can't, can't afford that. You can have one glass window and it's broken. We replaced it last spring. They don't really mean anything to you until you understand why and then the why of the construction gives meaning to even the individual items and the individual material that's being used for the construction. So the reason I want all this stuff is I want to build this, Statue of Liberty. And in its construction of material that doesn't seem very related, it projects meaning. But not only that, but the very material itself projects some kind of meaning. I know it doesn't seem like it, but when the United States first received the Statue of Liberty, she was copper. And then over the years of oxidization, I think is the correct thing, uh, she turns green. But copper in the 19th century was used by uh, artists to um, communicate eternity. Uh, and then there would have been gold on this as well. The gold from the, uh, the halo coming out from her head, which is meant to, uh, to, to evoke inspiration, okay? Uh, this is, in sum, it's a nation's ethos that's being captured in these raw materials that otherwise you would be w- wondering what's the point of them. And that's similarly true for the instructions that we have here for the tabernacle. The an old Methodist theologian, Adam Clark, long ago argued this point. He said, in every sign or type, the thing signified or pointing out that which is beyond itself should either have certain properties or be accompanied by the certain circumstances as expressive as possible for the thing signified. Right? What he's trying to communicate is this. In other words, if you're gonna assign meaning to symbols, then the symbols themselves have to have meaning. So it's not just sufficient for you, and it is not sufficient in God's own way for him to create a list of construction materials without each one of those materials themselves holding meaning so that all of those little pieces of meaning create one big symbol one big object lesson, a big concept that's trying to be communicated. And so that's what we're going to look at today, the little meanings behind each piece of material that all add up to one big message that's being broadcasted to Israel. Now, I want to give a word of caution and a caveat here. I think we need to proceed cautiously through this text and texts to come. Because when you're trying to find meaning in the tabernacle, in both its material construction and kind of what's done in the tabernacle, uh, there are two extremes that we can fall on. Right? One extreme is going to be hardened skepticism that says if the text does not explicitly say that gold equals this, then it's not true. And by doing so, you fundamentally understand the Bible in its genre as literature. It's already given you hints at what gold means. And this is a very important point in the story of Israel. So we need to consider what does gold mean behind us? What does gold mean before us? That must be what gold means now. But on the other hand, so there's the hardened skeptic, but on the other hand, there's this frivolous interpretation where everything has meaning, right? And Jesus is hidden behind every single rock. And that's just not true. While Jesus is not hidden behind every single rock though, If you don't see that Jesus is the rock of the Old Testament, you've missed the point. So we need to have a good balance of interpretation. That's what I've tried very, very hard this morning, uh, not, not falling on one side or the other of this interpretation. So for the tabernacle, the materials by themselves don't really hold much meaning. But when you know why the materials were selected, for what purpose they were selected, they take on new meaning. And this is the case of the tabernacle, which is what we're going to be studying for like the next three months. In fact, essentially the rest of the book of Exodus concerns with the plans, the construction, and the operation of the tabernacle. So, why? Why why does scripture spend so much time on the tabernacle? And the answer is this, because God wants Israel, and by extension us, to know his desire and the lengths at which he will go to dwell with us, to come to us, to be with us. So in the modern world, when we think about religious spaces, um, we think about them as places where people gather. So it's primarily about the people, a cathedral or synagogue or a temple. In the ancient Near Eastern cultures, though, religious spaces were places where deities lived, like it was their permanent home. People believe that God's needed a place to live, so they built sacred spaces for their gods. And both of those perspectives when it comes to the tabernacle are wrong. Sacred spaces are meant for the people primarily. And God doesn't need a place to live. The tabernacle is gonna communicate both of those things to us. It's different. It isn't where God lives. It's a pale facsimile. It's a miniature copy of God's heavenly dwelling, but it's not the real thing. You see, as your camping tent is to your home, so the tabernacle is to heaven. It's a miniature. It's a temporary dwelling. In fact, you could easily easily call the tabernacle God's dwelling. And unlike the Canaanite gods, the Lord God does not need us to build him a house. He says this explicitly in Isaiah 61.1, where he says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. So, What is that house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? See, as important as the tabernacle is, we can't lose perspective that it's merely one piece of one part of God's leg rest. So it's important, uh, the the, the importance that the tabernacle carries must be found in something other than what the ancient Near Eastern people would have thought. The importance isn't what's to be found in it necessarily, the importance is to be found what it points towards. This point becomes especially apparent because unlike the Canaanite temples, which were static and fixed in locations, the tabernacle is dynamic and it's portable and it's able to be moved. And so already we have this implicit lesson that's very beautiful and very foreshadowing of Jesus that in the fixed temples of Canaan, the ancient Near Eastern gods made the worshipers come to them. But in the mobile tabernacle, the Lord God comes to his worshipers. God comes to be with us, which is why Jesus is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So let's dive into this passage, and what I want to do is I want to do it in reverse. So it asks first that donations would be made, and then it gives the list of what's to be donated. I wanna flip that upside down. I wanna look at the list of donations first and then end on how God asks for the donation. So uh, let's uh, look at verse uh, three through seven again. I'll just list what it is that God is asking for in contribution. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine fine twined linen. Goat's hairs, canned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and the breast piece. And both of those, the ephod and the breast piece, we'll come to them later. <clears throat> All right, let's discover the meaning behind each one of these materials. We'll begin with the precious metals. And the first one that we see here is gold. So, Gold, back then, was an expensive metal, just like it is today. Uh, It's interesting that for thousands of years, this has been one of the most precious metals that uh, humans have ever interacted with. But for Israel, there's uh, some extra meaning with gold that we don't necessarily see because of our culture and who we are. Gold, for us, is what you put on rings. Where's the first place, though, Israel would have seen gold in their scriptures? It actually goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The first instance of gold is found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 10 through 12, gives a description of where the Garden of Eden was. And it says that there was rivers that flowed around the whole land where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good Bedelium and onyx stones are there as well, giving us extra glimpse into that. So there's a gentle reminder in the tabernacle with the presence of gold of where humanity began. They began in the garden with God who walked in the cool of the day. Gold, though, from a Christian perspective, is also one of the uh, things that we know was given to Jesus as a gift by the Magi. They're coming to Jesus. They recognize he has something special about him. He's messianic. He's divine. So they give him a gift of gold. We also know from Revelation that gold is essentially the material that God's going to pave streets with. Right? So gold has significant meaning when it comes to deity, divinity, heavenliness, godness. When you think gold here in this passage, think deity, divinity, which is really important because gold being the first item on the list that God's requesting puts God first, doesn't it? The tabernacle begins not with us, but with God. The second uh, precious metal is silver. And uh, Israel likely would have associated silver, the color silver and the metal silver, with redemption, um, with innocence, with making things right. Uh, And we think that because of a very strange story that we find in Genesis Chapter 20, it's pretty embarrassing for Abraham. Perhaps you're familiar with it. Abraham's going into a foreign land, and uh, he lies to a guy named Abimelech about his wife, Sarah. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister. Okay. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. And you can read between the lines for why. So this is putting them in quite a situation, isn't it? But God's not going to have any of it. And he sends Abimelech a terrible nightmare. And after the nightmare, Abimelech confronts Abraham in verses nine through 10. He says, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me in my kingdom a great sin? You've done to me things that ought not to be done. Understatement of that chapter. What did you see that you did this thing? And here's Abraham's response, verses 11 through 12. I did it because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mom. She became my wife. (laughs) In other words, he's like, look, y'all are scary. And technically, she's my half-sister, so. And Abimelech was like, I'm not having any of this. Verse 16, to Sarah, he said, behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of what? silver. Now, here's the association of silver in Israel. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone you are vindicated. Okay, weird story, I know, but here's the point. For Israel, as a culture at this time, silver was meant to evoke vindication or innocence or redemption or repurchasing from a bad situation. So putting all this together, we see the tabernacle through the precious metals are pointing us towards the God who redeems, the God gold who redeems silver. Now for the colors, the first one is blue. Imagine being Israel at this point, living in the desert, everything around you is brown and tan and beige. The only thing that's not is what's above you, bright blue skies. And what in the ancient Near Eastern culture is associated with the sky above? Heaven. So blue very often means, associates with heaven or heavenliness or highly spiritual. Uh, The next color we see is purple. In the ancient world, all the way up until the Industrial Revolution, purple fabric was really expensive. And uh, only royalty could afford it because it was so expensive to make. The Romans would actually crush thousands of this very specific snail that produced purple pigment just to get a little bit of the dye, and then they would produce something that looks like this. Uh, you're, You're talking months and months and thousands of snails and thousands and thousands of dollars just to get a little bit of purple dye. So the only people that could afford this very rare and very expensive fabric were royalty, which is why purple has become associated with royalty. And this is the case we see all the way up until the first century in Rome. Because at Jesus' crucifixion, when the soldiers were mocking him and harassing him and insulting him, they clothed him in a purple cloak. I don't know why purple? Twisting together a crown, so what a king would wear, of thorns, they put it on him. So they're making fun of him, mocking him for being the king of the Jews with purple. So purple is meant to evoke images of royalty and princes and kings. And I can't pass up telling this story. My daughter was here in the first service. Her favorite color is purple. She'll tell you that 30 times a day. And uh, when she was watching, she said, Daddy said purple. My wife's like, he did. And she turned to the TV screen and was like, Thank you, Daddy. <laughs> like, purple. The more we can mention purple, the better. <laughs> so, royalty, princes, kings, my kids' favorite color, purple. Scarlet is the next Uh, the next color, bright red, deep bright red. This has always been associated with sacrifice because it's associated with blood. And for Israel in specific, the sacrifice of an animal, like a goat or a bull. When an animal was slain for sacrifice, the area around them would be inundated with scarlet. That's the only thing that they could see. So putting all these together, we see the tabernacle is pointing Israel Toward God, gold in heaven, King of kings, purple, who redeems silver and does so through sacrifice, scarlet. God, gold in heaven, blue, King of kings, royal, uh, purple, who redeems silver through sacrifice, scarlet. Now for the fabrics. The first is the, twin, uh, the, the fine twine linen. Uh, similar to purple, this was really difficult to come by because it was really difficult to make. You would have to take two very fine threads and intertwine them so tightly as to make it almost indistinguishable that there's actually two threads there. So again, only the very wealthy could afford it. It was the nicest feeling uh, cloth at that time but you would take these two strands of threads and you would literally intertwine these two together so that you can't really tell that there's two at all. And in this sense, I think what Israel is hearing is one of the very first whispers that when God redeems, he's going to do so by this mysterious duality, a duality of natures, two natures, two threads, so tightly wound together that you can barely distinguish the two something that both is and is with, one who is God, sharing his essence, but one who is with God, holding a unique personhood, one who is truly God or is truly man. The next fabric is uh, goat's hair. Now, goat's hair is pretty much the opposite of fine linen. Anybody ever got a new like wool sweater and put it on without like an undershirt on? That's very uncomfortable and goat hair, camel hair, uh, these were very uncomfortable fabrics to wear back then. They were itchy, they were low quality, they were generally worn by the poor. So here's a question, if the tabernacle is meant to be a place where God dwells, why such a low grade material? Because for Israel, goat and camel haired garments were what prophets wore. So whenever Israel saw goat hair material, the thing that popped into their mind was a prophet who is an authoritative speaker on behalf of God. So to add this, God in heaven, king of kings who redeems, does so through the sacrifice made by a prophet. Uh, the, next, uh, the next material, tanned ramskins, skins, is, is also kind of interesting. Hand ramskins would have been really uh, smooth, it would have been nice material, would have felt good on you. This is uh, interesting because it's not just like the quality of the fabric that we're meant to be drawn to, I think, more so than how ramskins are associated with the priestly ministry within Israel. You see, Israel is going to learn that forgiveness of sins demands sacrifice, and the sacrifice can't be made by just anybody. Sacrifice has to be made by a priestly class, a priesthood of men. And the initial class, the inaugurating class of priests, would be led by Aaron, called by God, and to kind of officially begin their work, uh, they would do so by the sacrifice of a ram. You can find that in Exodus 29, 26 through 27. God says, you shall take the breast of a ram of Aaron's ordination and wave it for a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. This breast of the wave offering, the ram, is meant to remind Israel at a later date, oh yeah, that's when the priesthood class began. Ram sacrifices, ram skin, has to do with priests. Which means... God in heaven, king of kings who redeems, does so through the sacrifice of a prophet and a priest. The next one, goatskins, is really a strange word to translate Uh, because no one's quite sure what it means. The ESV, as you see, renders it goatskins, which is good, but we can't be certain because actually that word, needs to incorporate the color blue into it. That's why it gets strange to translate it. Like what kind of animal skin is naturally blue? Some people said it could be a sheep. Other translators say it could be a badger. Here's, here's a sad one. Some commentators are like, I actually think it was dolphin skin. Poor flipper, right? Uh, but others are like, well, maybe it's an extinct animal that had blue skin, we just don't know. Why would you say dolphin, though? Because of the requirement for blueness, this sapphire deep blue. But my problem with calling it dolphin skin is like the obvious problem in the text. Well, where did they get the dolphin skin from, (laughs) right? Like, they were slaves four months ago, and they've been in the desert ever since. And also, let's just be honest. Look at this guy. Do you really want to take his skin? Look how sad he is. Zoom in. I think he's asking us a question. Why, though? I know. I know. I'm with you, buddy. I believe what's trying to be communicated here is that it was going to be an animal leather that was dyed blue. Okay, I think that's the simplest solution here for what this meant. It matters less about what kind of animal and more that it was this color, deep blue, sapphire blue. Interestingly, we see this deep sapphire blue color again in Ezekiel. In Israel's future, they're going to be exiled into Babylon, and there God's going to send them a message of hope. He's going to say, Uh, You're not always going to be exiles. One day you're going to be called home. You're going to be returned home. And one of the ways that God sends this message is by giving the prophet Ezekiel a vision of heaven. And in this vision, he sees that above the expanse over their heads, these cherubim, there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire, deep blue. But here's where it gets strange for Ezekiel and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. So this deep blue is associated with the throne of God, but there on the throne, there seems to be something that's unthinkable for a monotheistic Jew. A person, a man of divine nature, being in the appearance of the likeness of a human, sitting on the throne of God sitting where the king of kings is supposed to sit. A divine king. So putting the colors together with what we've learned from the fabrics and the precious metals, we see that God in heaven, the king of kings who redeems, does so through sacrifice made by a prophet, a priest, and a king. You see where God's going with this? Because there's still more. In answer to an implicit question that I think the text is asking, what will God sacrifice through this prophet, priest, king? And the answer is found in the rest of the building material. First being wood. God asks Israel to bring acacia wood. And this is not a picture of acacia wood. Because we're really not sure what acacia wood is. There is something called acacia wood today, but scholars don't think that's actually what acacia wood was. Like goatskin, it's a tough word to translate. The word is shittim and it's very rare in the text. Difficult to tell what exactly they meant. Uh, apparently it was a very strong or very thick wood, very long lasting, something similar to what we would use today is like cherry wood or oak. And the first time we see this acacia wood, this shatim, is here in Exodus. And most of the time you see this wood is in the instructions in Exodus. You actually only see it two times outside of Exodus. One is in Deuteronomy, but it's basically telling you something about Exodus. And the second time, perhaps one of the most unique times, is in Isaiah. Where God says, I will plant in the wilderness the cedar, the shittah tree. There is the shittim, the acacia wood. The myrtle, the olive tree, and all set in the desert... The fir tree, the pine, and the box tree together. So if this is the only instance outside of the Torah that acacia wood is brought up, it has to help us unlock the mystery of why God would choose this specific kind of wood. So what is it about Isaiah 41 that can help us understand Exodus 25? See, in the context of this verse in Isaiah, in verse 19, God is promising Israel a future hope of redemption. He says in verse 10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I am with you. What's the tabernacle supposed to be communicating? Right? Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Now, go to verse 17 and pay very close attention. Listen closely. When the poor and the needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. Why does a parched tongue and thirst sound so familiar in the context of wood as Christians? Why is it that you can connect dots between wood a parched tongue, and forsakenness. Because of the crucifixion. You see, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. He parched. He wanted something to drink, John says. And Ma- Matthew records that about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Would it surprise you to learn that when Jews translated the Old Testament into Greek, they chose the, the term incorruptible wood for shittim. They didn't call it acacia wood. They didn't They didn't transliterate it. They said, this wood is incorruptible, which means the entire tabernacle of God, his redemptive dwelling among his people, the only reason it can stand and be held together is because there's incorruptible wood. That is the bones, that is the structuring of the tabernacle, incorruptible wood. You take the incorruptible wood out, the entire tabernacle, the entire presence of God among his people collapses. And you take the cross out, and the whole project of Christianity collapses. Incorruptible wood... is what holds the tabernacle together. It gets better, because if you're not convinced yet, look at the next two trappings in the tabernacle, oil and fragrances. So Israelites uh, would associate oil as a symbol of the Holy Spirit, a symbol of anointing, a symbol of setting apart. This is very common throughout all of the Old Testament. And uh, what do we see at Jesus' baptism? but the father anointing his son as the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. A voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. And Israelites would use fragrances to prepare bodies for death, an element to honor those who have passed. And what do we see prior to Christ's crucifixion? But Mary, who took a pound of expensive ointment, made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house is filled with the fragrance of perfume. So, putting all this together, the wood, the oil, the fragrances, God in heaven, the King of kings who redeems, does so through a sacrifice made by a prophet, priest, and king who was anointed and prepared to be parched and forsaken for us on wood. One final question, though for what reason is God going to such extraordinary lengths to redeem us? And is it merely Israel who's being saved? The last material element here on this list answers that question for us, and it is onyx. I'm sure you've seen onyx before. It's this brilliantly black and shiny stone, a very deep darkness in it. It's pretty rare in the Bible. There's only 12 references to it in total. And interestingly, the Bible has already mentioned onyx once before this in the Garden of Eden. So again, one of the materials is taking us back to the garden. And I think this is really interesting because the first material that God asks Israel for, gold, and the last material that God specifically asks, onyx, both take us back to the garden and are both present in the new heavens and the new earth. Because why didn't God just tell us at the beginning, I need gold, silver, and onyx? He was already listing off raw materials that come from the earth, right? So why put onyx at the end? because where you started with me in fellowship and in holiness is where I'm taking you. That we began in the garden, and through sin, we lost fellowship, but everything in the middle, the prophet, priest, and king, and his sacrifice on the cross is getting us to a new garden. Actually, something better, a new city, a new Jerusalem, heaven. But the material itself, I think, is is, is not just the only thing we're supposed to look at. Because in this story with Israel, this is the second really dark black thing that we've seen, isn't it? When's the la- look, look, at the, look at the onyx for a minute, just look at it. Um, how thick is that darkness? How thick is that blackness? So if you're keeping tabs of what's going on in this story, when's the, what, what if you're an Israelite, what event that you've experienced would this stone remind you of? Remember, when Israel first met God at Mount Sinai, it was a terrifying experience for them. Thunder, lightning, sounds of trumpet, the mountain was smoking. Israel said, hey Moses, you speak for us, or you speak to us and we'll listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses says, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you and you may not sin. But the people stood far off while Moses drew near to what? Thick darkness. Go back to the picture of Onyx. This episode happened a matter of days ago for the Israelites. Thick darkness is meant to communicate two things. First, judgment. Remember, in Egypt, one of the plagues was darkness over the land. God was judging Egypt, and in that darkness, he was condemning them for sin. The second thing that it reminds us of is uh, gloom, melancholy, unhappiness, misery. It's the opposite of joy. So thick darkness is less a statement about God as it is about us, that if we as sinners approach God, the only thing that happens if we bring nothing before him is judgment. Judgment. We can't approach God without forgiveness and we can't receive forgiveness without a sacrifice and we can't provide a sacrifice powerful enough to receive forgiveness, which is why we need a mediator, which is why Moses was the one that approached the thick darkness where God dwelt and why Israel stood far off. Moses drew near to the thick darkness, to the presence of judgment, to the misery of sinners before a holy God. So whenever Israel saw the onyx, they were reminded of two things. First, God desires to dwell again with his image bearers because we saw onyx in the Garden of Eden. But second, God demands a mediator to bridge the canyon uh, that sin has created, that separates us from him. So who is that mediator? God in heaven, king of kings, who redeems, and does so through sacrifice made by a prophet, priest, and king who is anointed and prepared to be parched and forsaken for us on a wooden cross. Friends, if you leave with nothing today, please leave with this. The tabernacle is an object lesson of Jesus. This is why he said in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. The tabernacle is a symbol of Jesus. It's an exact type or a foreshadowing of the Messiah. That for generation after generation after generation, Israel would be taught something about Jesus's person. What is he? What is he like? And that they would be taught about something of his work. What does he do? How does he redeem? Who does he redeem? This is why God's command to build the tabernacle is so precise and so specific. He says in verses eight through nine, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly, precisely, with precision, as I show you concerning the pattern of the the tabernacle and all of its furniture, you shall make it. And we're gonna see that in the coming weeks. See, God doesn't want Israel to err in making the tabernacle because he doesn't want them to miss when his son tabernacles among them. And the apostle John knew this very well. And this is why the tabernacle is a prequel. In John one, one through two in verse 14, John opens his gospel with these words. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You could say he tabernacled with us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And it's this Son from the Father, God's only way of redemption, who comes to us and invites us to follow me. Having spent generations preparing their hearts in the tabernacle and later the temple, God sent his son to invite his people to follow him. And not only did he send his son to invite them, and not only was Israel being prepared, but notice how God first equips before he invites. In fact, God equipped Israel to be equipped in the first place. I know that sounds strange, but hear me out. Salvation is always merely our response to what God has already done. Salvation is never our initiation. It is always God initiating and our response to it. Let me show you what I mean. Go back up to verses one through two. So here's, we've done the verse backwards. Now we're going all the way up to the top. I promise we're not going all the way back through the bottom. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they may take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. Question, where did Israel get all the material to make the contribution? It's kind of like the dolphin question, right? Four and a half months ago, they were slaves. And from that point to today, they've been wandering around a desert. Where are they getting onyx? Where are they getting really expensive linen from? There's no buckies in the Sinai Peninsula. So where are they getting this stuff from? God knew he was going to ask this from them. So all the way at the beginning of the Exodus, he actually equipped them with the material they would need, didn't he? God gave them the material. On the eve of the final plague, God gave Israel instructions. He says, there's one more plague that I'm going to bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. This is Exodus 11. Afterward, you will, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now, in hearing, uh, speak now in the hearing of the people. So he's talking to Moses. Tell this to Israel that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And then after the last plague, Pharaoh finally releases them. Israel obeyed this command. In verse 35, the people of Israel had done also as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. So we know that the list is not just restricted to gold and silver. And the Lord gave, or the Lord had given his people favor on the side of the Egyptians, so they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. I bet the Israelites thought, they were like, why am I taking all of this? I don't know, God told me to like, What am I going to buy in the desert with all this gold? (laughs) I don't know. God told me to. God's equipping them. He's equipping them. And with this plundered material that God gave them, and in the freedom that God gave them, he then asks Israel to donate it. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel, that they may take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. But notice now that God doesn't demand it from everyone. He says, you know what? I only want this material from every man whose heart moves him. I want this collection of contribution to be given to me out of love. I'm not coercing the people. I'm merely asking the people, look at what I've done for you. See how I have equipped you. I love you, don't I? Do you love me? Then respond to the invitation I'm giving you to create an object lesson of your Messiah who will come in the future to save you. You see, God equips the called, but he does not call by coercion. He calls by love. God doesn't say, hey, if you give me all this stuff, then I'll dwell with you. Instead, he equips us with a new heart that radiates in our souls and readies for us to hear the response, follow me. God calls us out of spiritual graves to a newness of life. Says, remember what I have done for you? Now I intend to dwell with you. Won't you follow my word? Trust me, I love you. This is, again, a foreshadowing of the gospel. A proclamation of what God has done in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of his son, a recognition that God has equipped us, our souls and our renewed hearts through the Holy Spirit, and a response that follows that precious invitation, follow me. It's no surprise to me that God first dwelt among Israel, not in a static, stationary temple, but a dynamic, mobile tabernacle. Because how do you follow something that stays put? And that Jesus' invitation isn't, hey, you come up to me, and then I'll love you. But I love you, so I've come down to you. Now follow me. Follow Christ. Follow our great tabernacle. Your creator, the one who repurchased you from sin and death. The one from heaven who is king over all power, who redeems by sacrifice, who is truly God and truly man who is the greatest prophet and priest, who has exchanged his heavenly throne for a bloody cross for you, who makes it possible now to approach God. How? It's as simple as this. Believe that's true. Believe that what's being communicated in the tabernacle to Israel has been fulfilled in its completion in Christ. Because God has issued an invitation to receive the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We just need to place our faith in Him. What a beautiful object lesson in the Messiah to know that the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross was not plan B. God had been working to send His Son to save the world all the way back in Exodus 25 by readying a people's hearts to receive their Messiah. And today, as Christians, we get 20-20 hindsight through the resurrection, through the cross, through the life of Jesus, back to see what God was doing the entire time. And in that sense, I think we're more blessed than the Israelites, because we get to see what God has already done, but from their perspective, they're looking forward through the tabernacle, which was vague and mysterious. And what was vague and mysterious to them has been given to us by Scripture in clarity. Do you believe it? Follow me, Jesus says, our great tabernacle. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for its preservation and its inspiration and for the amazing detail that you give us to communicate not only your power and might, but your love for us. We thank you that you are a God who equips and readies before he calls, that you are not a God who calls out of coercion, but one who calls out of love through the actions that you have done for us before we loved you, while we were your enemies, while we were dead in sin. And so, Father, we praise you, and we thank you for this object lesson of your Son in the tabernacle. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would continue to reveal to us how you are readying your people for generations, through not only the material of the tabernacle, but its construction, its design, and its function, all culminating in the wonderful work of our great high priest, prophet, and king, the Lord Jesus, whose name we pray. Amen.